Well, hello, everyone. Um, thankful to be able to spend this Wednesday evening with you. Uh, I hope you all have been doing well at home this week. I want to start off by saying that Becky and I truly miss being with our church family. Church definitely hasn't been the same without you there. Uh, even this past Sunday, as I was pulling into the parking lot of the SDA church, I'm used to seeing our parking crew already setting up the signs. I'm used to being welcomed at the front door by our welcome team and seeing a group of you enjoying the morning yum-yums that have been set up by our refreshments team. And I really do miss seeing the different members of the body serving Christ together. But despite missing you all, we continue to lift you up in prayer, both collectively and individually, as we look to the Lord to pave the way for us to be able to gather once again. Living through these present times has not been easy by any stretch of the imagination. In our household, there's been lots of fighting, lots of tears, mixed with moments of bonding with the boys. The need for shepherding hearts has always been there, but it's been magnified through the shelter at home. At work, there have been challenges for me as well, from having to help staff our respiratory clinic to having to care for patients from home through phone and video visits. I often feel inadequate. But through all these things, God is good and he is faithful. And he does not have a better plan for us. He's orchestrating all these events to expose our hearts and to sanctify our lives. And while there are definitely times I wish we could just simply move forward, in the end, I'm just thankful that he's in control and not me. God's divine purposes for his people have always included trials of various kind. We shouldn't be surprised then when James writes in verse 2 of chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's definitely been testing our faith during this season. And even when we have lacked faith, he has remained faithful to us. On a macroscopic level, I would say that these are spiritually dark days. But as been mentioned many times before, there is nothing new under the sun. We simply have to open our Bible and start reading from the opening chapters of Genesis to see that there has been no shortage of spiritually dark times in the history of mankind. Imagine living during Noah's days when, according to Moses, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually or during the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Place yourself in the times of the prophets when people continually ignored 
and rejected the word of the Lord. For during the time of the first century church, when Jews entered house after house, dragging off men and women in persecution. And consider the words of scripture regarding the last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. It certainly seems like we are living in those times right now. The scripture is not silent and has much to say about times like these. Sadly, though, for many in the church, and our church is no exception, the voices of men, of the news and social media, speak louder than the voice of God's word. Within all of our sinful hearts is the temptation to get riled up, to lean on our own understanding, to be quick to speak and respond out of our emotion or experience, rather than to go before his word, to listen and hear what God has to say. And as your shepherd, I would gently caution you about listening to or associating with or joining the voice of the masses. We have to ask ourselves, are they really seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, as Christ calls us as his followers to do? As it was announced this past week that government officials in several major cities intended to defund and or disband the police department in response to the growing call by the people, I couldn't help but think about Pilate capitulating to the demands of the Jews to release Barabbas and crucify our Lord and Savior. Now, I don't want to take the comparison too far. The police department is not the sinless Son of God. And the police department, like any other institution led by sinful men, including the government, the military, the Boy Scouts, even the church, has those who wrongly abuse and take advantage of their power. But before we act according to our flesh and ignorance, have we stopped to pray and to listen to what God calls for? What we desperately need is to hear from God himself. And as Pastor Mark reminded us this past Sunday, he has spoken to us through his inerrant and authoritative word. So tonight I just want to share a couple thoughts on what the Lord has been teaching me through his word about his word as we continue our elders' series on the doctrine of Scripture. It has been an edifying study for me, and I pray that it will be an encouragement for you as well. So before we begin, would you join with me in a word of 
prayer. Heavenly Father, you are indeed our good God, our good shepherd. And you've created us to depend upon you, to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, as we come to your word this evening, will you open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word, about your word. Sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. And may our lives, Lord, be transformed in such a way that it would be worthy of the calling that we have received, and that it would be worship and pleasing to Christ, in whose name we pray. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, and we're going to be reading, starting from the beginning of the book, all the way to chapter 2, verse 13. First Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verse 13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is the word of God. The church in Thessalonica was living through some challenging times, one might argue more difficult than what we are facing today. According to verse 6 of chapter 1, the church was going through much affliction. And that affliction, as we read further down, was the persecution of the church at the hand of the Jews. And some have said that the church in America is being persecuted by virtue of the shelter and place order that has prevented us from gathering together up to this point. I would humbly disagree that this counts as religious persecution. The type of persecution of brothers and sisters places around the world like the Middle East, China, and Southeast Asia are facing today as they are thrown in jail, beaten, cut off from family, fired from their jobs, even killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. The type of persecution that the church in Thessalonica was facing at the time this epistle was written. And in order to encourage and exhort the believers of that persecuted congregation, the Apostle Paul identifies and gives thanks to God for evidence of his grace in their lives. And it's interesting to know what in particular he gives thanks for. The first place we see this is chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The second place where we see the apostle give thanks to God for the Thessalonians is in chapter 2, verse 13, the last verse we ended at, and says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. We will eventually see how these two commendations are actually connected. But to begin, I want to focus in on the, the second. And so take a closer look with me at verse 13 of chapter 2. And I want you to notice that the phrase, word of God, is repeated twice in this verse. It is contrasted with the word of men. It says, when you receive the word of God, 
which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Well, right before the shelter in place, uh, by God's grace, our family was able to move back into our home after going through nine months of remodel. And we've slowly been unpacking boxes and boxes of books that we've accumulated as a family over the years. Medical textbooks, children's books, commentaries, and many, many books from Shepherd's Conferences. And I'm reminded that all the books that have ever been written, even good ones by authors whom we would recommend, like John MacArthur, John Calvin, John Piper, all these books are, at the end of the day, merely the words of men. But the scripture is unique in that unlike any other book, it is the word of God, the divinely inspired written revelation from God. Now think about that for just a moment and let this thought sink in. The one true eternal God who created us, the universe and all that it contains, who possesses infinite knowledge and dwells in unapproachable light, has chosen to reveal or communicate certain things to us as his finite and fallen creation. That's what revelation means. And he did this, he communicated and revealed this under no external obligation or compulsion. Having created the universe with human creatures in it, God could have decided to give us no instructions about himself and his expectations for how we should live and relate to him. Had God so pleased, he might have continued alone for all eternity without making known his glory to his creatures in this way. But out of sovereign goodness and love for his own, he provided us his written word. Revelation is always from the top down. It is never bottom up. Now, what do I mean by that? It's this. God can never be found out by searching from below. He can only be known by those to whom he makes himself known. And he has done that in part through creation, through our conscience and through providence, what theologians call natural or general revelation. But he has done that most fully through his written word. So at the end of the day, God's word is divine revelation. So every time we approach the Bible, we need to put ourselves rightly where we belong, beneath God and his word. He is speaking to us, and we must listen, not the other way around. This shouldn't be an option. And as it is the word of God, we must receive it as the perfect and inerrant word in whole, but also in all its parts without error, as it attests to be. Because as we learned a couple weeks ago, 
The perfection of Scripture is rooted in the perfection of God's character. It's because God himself is truth and cannot lie that his word is truthful. And because God is faithful, his word is trustworthy. The person and word of God are interrelated, such that what we think about God's word reflects and reveals what we think about God. I'll say that again. What we think about God's word reflects and reveals what we think about God. Let me give you an example. At Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose, we hold to a high view of God and a high view of his word. That's what we believe. Now, let's just say that instead, we held to a low view of God's word, that it is generally true, but has some mathematical errors, that it is helpful, but not necessary for our lives, that it is not authoritative or clear. No matter what we say we believe about God, it shows that we actually have a low, debased view of God. On the flip side, if we truly hold to a high view of God, it will be reflected in a high view of his word as inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. It is impossible to have a high view of God while holding to a low view of his word because the nature of God and the nature of his word are inseparable. So when we call into question the perfection of scripture, we call into question the character of God. So it begs the following questions of us. Do we really believe that the Bible in whole and all of its part is the word of God, his written revelation to us? What does our view of his word reveal about what we actually believe about God? Now, I expect that most of you, if not all of you who are watching, believes the Bible to be the word of God. At least I hope so. But it's one thing to affirm that the Bible is the word of God, to affirm our church's doctrinal statement, and to affirm the historical position of biblical inerrancy of the scripture. It's entirely another thing to embrace it as such. If you look back at that verse we just read, the Thessalonians weren't commended for simply holding to the right doctrine about the Lord. But they were commended for receiving or welcoming it as the word of God. Dekomai in the Greek, that's what it means to welcome or receive. There's a big difference between having the right view and living out the right view. We do need to have a strong biblical conviction about the Word of God, about its inerrancy, its infallibility, its sufficiency, and its authority. But it should never end there. Rightly applied, conviction should always bear fruit in our lives through godly living. The more we receive and come to understand the truth of God, the deeper should our worship be for our Lord and Savior. 
the more Christ-like should our love be, and the greater humility and holiness should characterize our lives as his saints. In light of our current times, with the coronavirus pandemic, the social and political unrest, the economic crisis in this nation, I wonder how churches in Minneapolis, in Atlanta, in New York City, in Washington, D.C., and all around America would look if they simply followed the example of the Thessalonians. How would Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose look if we did just that? If we received the Word of God and accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. As Pastor Mark reminded us from the Word on Sunday, if we as human fallen humanity, if we as fallen humanity are the problem, then at the end of the day, what we need and what this world needs is Christ, his gospel, and his salvation. He alone is the remedy. And if the calling of the church is to be the gospel made visible, that we not only proclaim the gospel, but display its effect on our lives, then what this world needs to see is for the church to be the church. What do I mean by that? It's for the church to be distinct from the world, holy from, holy like her Savior, loving as his disciples, unified under his lordship. Essentially, our ambition should be to be as much like Christ as possible. We, we are called Christians for a reason. Right? We are to be little Christs in this world. And how does this happen? What is the necessary, sufficient, and effective means that God has provided for the church to be the church? It's the Word of God. Go back with me to the very last part of the verse we've been looking at, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We read, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which what? which is at work in you believers. Right? Which is at work in you believers. The word of God powerfully and effectively works in us. This is a supernatural work that no words of man can produce. No matter how brilliant, how persuasive, no matter how educated or charismatic they are. Only as our hearts are acted upon worked on, and transformed by the living and abiding and active Word of God. And as our lives are conformed more and more into the image of Christ, does the church fulfill its true purpose? The very Word of God that saves sinners also sanctifies, sustains, and equips us as believers so that our lives can testify to the truth of the gospel to the truth of Christ. And so for the rest of our time together, I just want to take you to a couple places in Scripture where we clearly see this. So first, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
and verse 15 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. And we're familiar with this passage. Right? The Apostle Paul here is writing to Timothy, reminding him of the sufficiency of God's word. Right? Look with me at verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We see here that scripture is not only necessary, but also sufficient for the man of God. The same sacred writings that lead us to saving faith in Christ. Right? The theological term we would use here is justification. That same sacred writing is able to make us complete or mature in him. And that's over a lifelong process called sanctification. So the word of God is necessary and sufficient for the entirety of our lives. From the moment we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, from that point of salvation and spanning the rest of our Christian life, God has given us his inerrant word as a means of grace. And it powerfully works within us to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness. And we see the same exact truth bear out in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Turn with me there. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Here in these verses, Peter is writing to suffering Christians, and as a way of encouraging and exhorting them to remain steadfast in the faith, he reminds them of the power and provision of the Word of God. Look with me again at verse 3. It starts out, His divine power. He starts out by reminding them about the nature and the source of their spiritual strength. It comes from above from the one who created and sustains all things, who possesses unlimited power. And then his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Right? There's the sufficiency. They've been given everything they need to live a life of godliness in the face of real adversity. There's nothing that they lack spiritually. They've been given everything they need. 
The next part of the verse goes, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All of this, all of the resources that they've been given, they have received through the saving knowledge of Christ. This limitless resource is available not only to those to whom Peter writes this letter, but to everyone who have been called and who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the question remains, what is it that these believers have received from God? What is the all things that will enable them to pursue life and godliness without lacking anything? And we see the answer in the very next part of the verse. We read, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, what's Peter talking about here? Where do we find God's precious and very great promises to us? In the scripture. It's in his inerrant, authoritative word that these believers have been given everything they need for life and godliness, even in the midst of great suffering and persecution. You guys see it in the text? Do we believe that? That the word of God is absolutely sufficient, meaning there is no situation in the life of a believer no persecution or pandemic, no relational conflict or doctrinal disagreement, where scripture is not enough for us to obey or trust him perfectly. That to me is incredibly hopeful. But Peter's not done encouraging these believers. He goes on to describe the supernatural effect that God's word has on their lives. Let's keep reading. It says, so that through them, referring to his precious and very great promises, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Wow, what a glorious statement. But what does it mean that we become partakers of the divine nature? And how does his promises affect us in particular? Peter is not a polytheist suggesting that we somehow become demigods. The word translated partakers here is koinos in the original language, from which we get the word fellowship. Peter is saying that through his word, we share in the nature of God. By becoming children of God, we partake of his life in us. We don't become like him in essence, but rather sharers in and partakers of God's nature, his holiness, his righteousness, his truth. Another way to say it is that we are made holy as he is holy. And on the flip side, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, means that we are delivered from everything that is evil 
and unrighteous in this fallen world. That is what scripture promises from beginning to end. Now, there is a sense in which this has already happened. Believing in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We're redeemed. We become children of God. But we're not perfect. There is corruption still within us, and there is corruption in the world in which we live. We cannot escape the evil around us. But the precious and very great promise is that in the end, we're going to be entirely delivered from it. We are being delivered from it, and we've been separated from it spiritually. But there will come a day when we will be absolutely free from it, when his work of redemption will be finally complete. So the sufficient word of God prepares us, it purifies us, and it perfects us for this final day. And as we keep these promises before us, his precious and very great promises that have been given for life and godliness, it will bring us from the present all the way to glorification. That is the sufficient and effective word of God. Just to conclude, I want to bring us back to the Thessalonians and make the connection between their gospel witness and the word of God. Between their gospel witness and the word of God. And as I mentioned before, the Thessalonians were commended for their work of faith, their labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. We see that in chapter 1, verse 3. They were also commended for receiving the scripture as the word of God and not as the word of men. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 13. And here's the point I want to leave you with. Their spiritual progress was a direct result of their reception of the Word of God. Their spiritual progress was a direct result of how they received the Word of God. As these believers welcomed and embraced the Word of God, it worked in them supernaturally to produce a life of godliness that became a shining example to other believers in Macedonia and Achaia and beyond, and that served as an irrefutable witness of the gospel to unbelievers. Brothers and sisters of Lighthouse Bible Church, my prayer is that we would experience this same transforming power in our church as we embrace his word and appropriate it to our lives. That especially during these spiritually dark days, we would indeed be a church that shines brightly, the gospel made visible, not only in our immediate community, but to the end of the earth, as the word of God effectively works in us. Will we embrace the word of God as the word of God, not the word of man, inerrant, authoritative, 
sufficient and necessary for our lives? And will we count his promises as precious and very great in our lives? I'm deeply thankful to God for our church, for all that he has given to us in his word, and for, for the opportunity we have to walk by faith and the strength of his power and his wisdom. May the Lord help us, and may we help each other do so all the more in the days ahead. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us clearly through the scriptures, your written revelation to us. Lord, it is sufficient, it is inerrant, it is necessary, it is indeed authoritative over our lives. Lord, help us to follow the examples of the Thessalonians who received your truth as the word of God, allowed it to do its work in their hearts, so that the fruit of it was a visible witness of the gospel to all who saw them. We pray that that would be true of us as a church, that we would not only know that the scriptures are the word of God, but that we would embrace it, that we would trust it, we would submit to it, we would treasure it, we would love it, we would tremble before it, we would allow it to teach us reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness so that we as a church would be the church that you call us to be, where we know our gospel witness depends on it, our worship of you depends on it. So help us to really see your word as the word of God and to live in light of that in the days ahead. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Thank you for spending the evening with us, and we'll see you soon. Good night.